may not be aware that typically the research that we cover on this podcast is pulled from our list of the 100 most influential OT-related journal articles. And this is a list we generate each year based on the articles from the past five years that had the most citations that also talked about occupational therapy. So we pull this list at the beginning of the year and we do our best to just work through these influential papers that have come out. And that's been our process for three years now. And honestly, I've never wanted to skip an article that I've come across on the list until this one, because I hit it and I knew that this is such an emotionally charged topic. But it is our mission at OT Potential to look squarely at this influential research that is influencing our profession. So on this episode, we are diving headfirst into a sensitive subject in the OT world, sensory techniques. The authors of the systematic review that we are looking at present the evidence behind specific sensory techniques and environmental modification for children with sensory integration differences. Now, OTs have collectively invested a tremendous amount of time and training into different types of sensory techniques. And many of us view sensory expertise as our professional identity, believing it is what sets us apart from other rehab disciplines. As we look at this research today, some of you are going to feel like this paper is too hard on sensory techniques, while others are going to feel that the authors were too generous in their appraisal of them. But wherever you land, I am so happy you are here today to engage in this discussion with us. After we look at the research, it is my pleasure to bring on a returning guest, Brighton Giving. I love talking to Brighton because he is such a passionate clinician, and he right now is also pursuing his OTD, and you'll hear when I bring him on how his research interests really align with what we'll be talking about today. So let's dive into this topic. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this topic of OT sensory techniques, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. To earn CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. After listening to the podcast, all you have to do is log into the club and take a test and we will generate a certificate for your time today. It is currently $89 for a membership with the CEU plan. So if you are not yet a member, I definitely encourage you to join us in there. But bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the episode today. Our first learning objective is you will be able to identify the level of evidence behind common sensory techniques. And second, you will be able to recognize evidence-based approaches to supporting individuals with sensory difficulties. So let's begin by looking at this journal article, and then we will patch Brighton into the podcast. The article that we are discussing today is called Specific Sensory Techniques and Sensory Environmental Modifications for Children and Youth with Sensory Integration Difficulties, a Systematic Review. It comes to us from the American Journal of Occupational Therapy. It was published in 2018, and it is ranked 99th on our list of the 100 most influential OT-related journal articles. 
So the article begins with this introduction to SI differences. Now, as you may know, the term sensory integrative dysfunction was coined in 1969 by occupational therapist Jean Ayers. The phrase referred to children who had difficulty organizing and using sensory information to accomplish their everyday tasks. Our language has evolved over the years, and the authors of this piece refer to this population as children with sensory integration difficulties. Something to note before we move on, this was not in the article. For myself on this podcast and in this review, I'm moving to using the phrase sensory processing differences versus difficulties. After hearing from people in the neurodivergent community that this is just a more empowering and accurate way to refer to these differences. So as I'm talking today, I will definitely lean toward using the word differences unless I'm citing a specific study or title where I'm wanting to reflect what the authors wanted to say. So moving forward back into this introduction, the authors share a 2004 study that suggested a roughly 5% incidence of sensory integration differences among typically developing kindergartners. SI differences are thought to be much more common among kids with developmental or behavioral conditions, such as autism spectrum disorder or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And they share a text that estimated that the prevalence of SI differences in autistic people ranges from about 40% to more than 90%. So from here, the article shifts to talking about occupational therapy's role in working with this population. And historically, OT practitioners have been the leading professionals in evaluating and treating SI differences. We have used both remedial and compensatory techniques in doing this. Ayers sensory integration is an example of an intensive remedial approach, probably the most well-known in name. But many OTs also provide specific sensory techniques or sensory environmental adjustments as compensatory modifications. In fact, some practitioners use these techniques and modifications as their singular occupational therapy intervention, despite the fact that leaders in the fields have advocated that a multifaceted approach is best. So what was the intent of this research article? The authors say that despite the widespread use of specific sensory techniques, little is known regarding whether children's participation measurably improves after receiving these interventions. So the authors sought to answer the question, what is the effectiveness of OT interventions that use specific sensory techniques or sensory environmental modifications to support function and participation of children and youth who have SI difficulties? And looking at their methods, this was a systematic review. It was completed as part of the AOTA's evidence-based practice project with the intent to inform two set of guidelines, the AOTA guidelines for children with SI difficulties and the AOTA guidelines for children with ASD. Evidence was considered for this review if it met the following criteria. It was published from 2007 to 2015. It was a relatively high level of evidence, which they designated as level one, two, or three. The participants in the study had to be aged two to 21, the participants had to have documented SI difficulties. The intervention needed to be a specific sensory technique or environmental modification. And the study had to have a documented functional performance or participation level outcome. So what were their results? 
eight studies ended up being included in this review. They involve five different sensory techniques or modifications. I'm going to go through each type and talk a little bit about the evidence behind it. The first is Qigong massage. There were three level one studies. These were randomized control trials and one level two study. And the author said that they found strong evidence for the effectiveness of Qigong massage for young children with ASD. Specific improvements were found in self-regulatory behavior, tactile abnormalities, ASD symptoms, and parenting stress. I have my own editorial note about this intervention that I will save for the end of the summary because I want to move through these five techniques. But I do also want to say that the randomized controlled trials around this massage suggested that 50 hours of therapist training is required for a therapist to administer this intervention. And the intervention is recommended to be delivered daily for four to five months. The next sensory technique they looked at was weighted vest. There was one level one study, a randomized controlled trial. And this one study demonstrated improved in-seat behavior and attention of six to seven-year-olds with ADHD during classroom activities when they were using a weighted vest. And the author said this indicated, quote, limited evidence. The next technique was slow linear swinging. There was, again, one level one study. And slow linear swinging failed to show improved on-task behavior of children with ASD during a tabletop activity immediately following the intervention. And so this was categorized as insufficient evidence. The next was sensory enrichment in preschool. Again, there was one level one study and a sensory enrichment program of 12 weeks, which embedded tactile proprioceptive vestibular activities into a preschool's daily routines, found no difference between this group and another that received the intervention plus AIRS sensory integration. The authors again concluded the evidence was insufficient. And last was the one study that looked at an environmental modification, and it was a sensory environmental modification in a dental office. And there was one level one study about this. In this study, altering the visual and auditory environment of a dental office, plus providing a weighted wrap, improved the outcomes of pain intensity, sensory discomfort, and participation. Improvements were seen for both children with ASD and those who are typically developing. The authors concluded that the evidence was moderate. So those were the techniques that they found to be included in this review. They did specifically mention a couple techniques that were in the literature, but they just did not have a study that was either that level one, two, or three to even be considered to be reviewed. And they specifically mentioned the Wahlberger protocol, therapy ball chairs, astronaut changing, and auditory stimulation listening programs. Moving on to their discussion, the authors highlight that only studies with a certain threshold of evidence were included in this review, which led to a small number of papers being studied. Qigong massage was the only intervention with strong evidence behind it, but the authors cautioned that all of the studies were done by the same research group. I'm saving my own editorial note on this for the very end. The authors again highlighted that moderate evidence supports sensory modifications to dental offices and that the other techniques I mentioned have limited to insufficient evidence. The authors emphasize that OT practitioners should use caution when an intervention has limited or no evidence to back its efficacy. And such intervention should only be used after considering interventions with a strong level of evidence supporting their use. 
I'm going to loop in some past conversations on the podcast here too. And I would just personally add when we're looking at these limited and insufficient evidence treatments, I also think it is our ethical imperative as OT practitioners to make families aware when an approach that lacks evidence is being considered. I think that's something that we need to be discussing with them. And of course, as always, we move through this paper really quickly. They definitely go more in depth into things in the paper. So I encourage you to find this research article, read it in full, consider it for yourself. I did want to add my one editorial note on Qigong massage. Bryden and I don't talk about this technique in our discussion. Just as I was reading about it on the website, the authors mentioned how all the research came out of this one center and this one research team. And something I noted on the website was it said this treatment is grounded in the belief that autism is caused by a lack of touch, which we just now know is simply not true. And that just raises a red flag for me where the mechanism of action of the treatment doesn't fully make sense to me. So this isn't something we'll dive into with a discussion. We're going to stay more general about sensory techniques, but definitely something for you to do your own reading on. But there is certainly a lot to unpack from this research article. It stirs up a lot of emotions, and I'm so thankful that Bryden Giving is here to discuss it with us. Bryden is a doctoral student at Boston University and a licensed occupational therapy practitioner with experience in evidence-based interventions, therapeutic treatments, and contextual supports for neurodivergent pediatric patients. His work emphasizes a forgotten aspect regarding evidence-based practice, the client's values, including how well the intervention honors neurodivergent identity. His doctoral project's main objective is to promote the delivery of best practices for autistic children and youth, emphasizing those that are both research-informed and honor autistic identity. So without further ado, I will patch Bryden into this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Bryden. It's great to have you. Honored and happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm so thankful to be diving into this topic today. When I think back on OT school and what I learned, I definitely think about learning about myself as a sensory individual and the layers of that that I've learned. And that has been so helpful in my life to see myself in that way. And I think of it clinically, working with my adult patients to see things through that lens. I think it's such a wonderful and beautiful and valuable lens to look at things through. But then we look at this article and this nudges us to consider how we utilize that skill set in our practice. And I'm just, yeah, thankful to be talking about that today. But before we dive into the article, I wanted to start a little bit with you and your story. You're a returning guest. And so instead of asking how you found OT, I wanted to ask a little bit about how you found out as an adult that you are neurodivergent. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And because when I think, when I'm thinking about it, when I was on the podcast last time, I don't think I really discovered that I was an ADHD or at the time. I don't time. think so either. So it's been quite a fascinating and also just a very, like a, I think of it as like an exhale for me really, because long story short, when I like think back to like growing up, I didn't really fit the stereotypical mold of what an ADHD or looks like. Cause I think a lot of our culture and a lot of just, I think how a lot of healthcare practitioners kind of 
placed ADHD or kids was like they're like very impulsive, they're very behavioral, they're having a hard time in school and public education and just education in general. I mean, I did relatively well. I mean, I, had a, I felt like I had to study extra hard and like really like reread a million things over and over again. My grades mm. did fine. I didn't really get into trouble. So I don't think I really fit kind of that that mold. However, I felt like really looking back though, like I said, for like homework, homework usually took me longer if I was reading or studying for an exam. I felt like I had to reread the same thing over and over again. And so I always would tell myself that like, you know, why aren't you like getting it? Why aren't you absorbing it? Mm. Like my focus was really challenging when it came to studying for school, but I got by, I got through high school and got through college and did relatively fine but still there was always like this link these lingering thoughts in my brain like why do you feel like you have to spend more hours studying why is there some impulsivity in some areas of my life I felt like in other parts of my life I was very disorganized and I'm also just very I'm very energetic so my planning skills were just really off and so I have always felt like I always told myself that why do you feel like like you're stupid or why aren't you like grasping mm-hmm. things or why aren't you like, why aren't you doing these things well as, as well as your peers? And so there's always like this thought in the back of my head going over and over again. And then I started talking to Sarah, the autistic OT, and she's just an incredible, incredible human. We were mm-hmm. having conversation and she's like, well, Bryden, have you like ever like dove into like the ADHD realm? Like it's more than just a stereotype and what it looks like there. It's like a whole spectrum. And I started really diving into it and, did an evaluation and I was diagnosed and I felt like I could exhale for the first time Hmm. because there was like a, it's so interesting thinking about it because I think a lot of folks are afraid of labels, which I understand the label of like autism, ADHD, anxiety, like putting a label on it. But I feel like there is so much power in having a label because I know that there's other folks that experience the world like me. Like there's a whole community of people that experience Mm -hmm. the world like me and there's so much power in that but yeah that's kind of like a a quick little snippet of my journey and one thing too is there's a lot of strengths I think to being an ADHDer like we have a variety of skills and abilities and I have my own sensory processing differences and one of my favorite strengths I like to talk about is if I'm interested in something I could do that for hours and hours and if I'm multitasking and there are projects or tasks that I'm passionate about you can bet that I can probably hold my attention to those tasks far longer and better than someone who's not an ADHD ear. And so I think the one beautiful part about a lot of us ADHD ears is that we're trying to emphasize, yes, there are some supports that we may benefit from, but we're also just not a bunch of deficits either, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Thank you so much for sharing that. I just think about my own journey as an adult too. And I feel like the more we learn about our health, the more it's just so powerful than the stories that are in our heads. And it helps us to understand like why we make certain choices and our differences and our strengths and how those things can often go hand in hand. And there's a lot of emotion to that, a lot of emotion from that shift to being like, I'm not good at something or I feel stupid versus, but I have these strengths over here. And I think that's part of the power of occupational therapy, especially when we're we're working with kids to be able to recognize differences and support strengths. Yeah, and that all just 
leads so into this topic today. Before we get to the article, I also wanted to ask, you are pursuing your OTD. Can you tell me a little bit about your focus there and what you're learning? Yeah, so I am pursuing my post-professional doctorate in occupational therapy through Boston University, which I am just obsessed with. And yeah, so much of my doctoral project is really focusing on redefining evidence-based practice because within research, when looking at occupational therapy interventions, there is, I feel, a diminished or a lack of the voice of the community or the population that we are supporting or serving. And so, for example, my doctoral project is focusing on occupational therapy treatment strategies for supporting autistic children and youth. And many of the healthcare services supporting the autistic community rarely, if ever, invite autistic individuals actually into the creation of these interventions or even the assessments that we created which therefore really diminishes really how meaningful the intervention and even the outcomes that we're that we're like we're studying to support the efficacy or even make meaningful like for example within OT and speech a lot of our social communication interventions never incorporated autistic individuals and so a lot of like the interventions focus and focus on memorizing neurotypical social skill rules or norms mm-hmm. And so many of our assessments are they are therefore going to demonstrate or try to show how well an autistic kiddo can memorize neurotypical social skill norms, but they don't really assess like really how meaningful these rules are for the autistic individual, really their quality of life regarding social participation. And so my doctoral project is going to kind of combine like how much of the research is supporting an intervention, but also amplifying, if not more importantly, illustrating how autistic affirming an an intervention is. Some other examples is like ABA and traditional behavioral Mm -hmm. techniques and social skills training, though, I mean, we could talk about the methodology really evaluating ABA and how a lot of that's problematic. But even just taking it for like the grain of salt, saying that ABA and reinforcement and social skills training, they're evidence-based, well, there may be some research supporting them but the autistic community is advocating that it's actually they're harmful and they're not meaningful. And we really need to focus and hone in on how affirming these interventions are in the first place. And so that's essentially kind of what my doctoral project will be focusing on. Mm. So the three traditional legs or pillars of evidence-based practice, correct me if I'm wrong here, are usually the evidence, the research the client's values and perspectives and clinical expertise. Yes, you nailed it. And you're hoping to bring more balance to all three. I think we all probably tend to find some kind of imbalance there at some point. We're relying too much on our own expertise or we're relying too much on what the evidence says. I think rarely have we relied too much on what the client wants. So you're hoping to bring some more balance there. Is that Right. 100% right. 100% right. Because a lot of practitioners that maybe who have been out of school for a while or just are not interested in like reading articles and are just interested in a lot of that kind of work, maybe focus a lot on their expertise or the perceptions of like their colleagues regarding interventions when trying to figure out what to do to support kiddos. Then you have maybe academics or folks really interested in research methodology that are very much focused strictly on the level of evidence, which is also important, but there is 
I mean, when you really look at like the like the articles and just OT in general and what we're publishing, there is rarely, if ever, any discussion on the values and the identity and how that's incorporated of the communities that we're tr- attempting to support and serve, which surprises mm-hmm. me really, especially for how holistic occupational therapy is, you know, we're trying to promote and advocate and so that's, that's very yeah. surprising for me. Yeah. I feel like I see that push starting to happen across practice areas, but it does feel new. It feels like a new way of thinking about things and definitely the push in the right direction. So, mm-hmm. well, that just sets up exactly why I wanted to talk with you about this article today. And turning to it, I think I just wanted to start with what were your initial impressions of this research that we looked at? Yeah. So this article, I I really do find this article very meaningful. And right off the bat, I will say initially when I was reading even just the title about children with sensory processing difficulties, I wasn't a fan of the medicalized and the deficit-based language the article utilizes throughout. You know, a quick little spiel is that, so as an ADHDer, I have my own sensory processing differences and even kind of like reading or hearing that I have sensory processing difficulties kind of makes it sound like these sensory processing difficulties need to be corrected Mm -hmm. or that they're not really a valid form of human diversity. Like even within the article, like I'll even like quickly share this quote that was that kind of like really just made me even feel a little anxious quote ASI, which is air sensory integration works with children and youth to engage in tailored activities that challenge their weak areas of sensory integration functioning to build competencies and mastery, end quote. I honestly, when like when I read stuff like that, it, it feels pretty invalidating. And so throughout the article, it's it's tough. Like reading sensory processing differences as difficulties, deficits, things that need to change, things that are wrong. But beyond that, one thing I do like about the article is this push for addressing sensory processing differences and how that impacts occupational participation, like it's pushing for something very different than what we're doing in OT currently. Because much of what we do when supporting sensory processing differences is that we are trying to change how the individual actually processes the sensory processing difference, like the sensory input on like a body structural level. So that's like air sensory integration, that's like the Wilbarger protocol, that's astronaut training, a lot of listening therapies like therapeutic listening. We're trying to, at the body structure level within their brain and within their body, trying to literally change how their their body processes sensory input into more of a neurotypical fashion. And what I do like is this article discusses how a lot of these sensory-based interventions, there's a lack of research supporting these interventions and instead it's pushing more for this adapting the environment to cater to sensory processing differences and really focusing on changing the environment changing the task instead of only focusing on changing the kiddo if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah definitely I feel like they didn't say this explicitly but the evidence behind the more like remedial treatments like you said just isn't there. I also didn't say this explicitly, and maybe I'm reading into it a little bit, but maybe there was, because there's a sensory difference, that doesn't mean that that's 
the cause of autism. There's a correlation there, but maybe early on they were like, if we change this, this will change. I don't know, that just hasn't been a, a correct pathway or a right way to think about things. No, I, I totally know, agree. That... No, I, okay. I totally understand where you're coming from because it's it's so interesting when we think about occupational participation, we think that basically how we're addressing these sensory processing differences is that you take this kiddo, they have sensory processing differences. We think that if we tweak or change how that kiddo experiences sensory processing input, therefore their participation in school at home is going to get better. And essentially the research is kind of sharing like, actually, that's not the most effective. And a lot of the neurodivergent community and the neurodiversity movement also supports like adapting the task and changing the environment. So Mm -hmm. they also advocate like, hey, actually that's not super neurodiversity affirming. Like why are you trying to change this beautiful part about who I am? It's it's a new way of experiencing the world. And there's a lot of different things that we can do to basically support me. So yeah, this article kind of doesn't also doesn't talk about neurodiversity or doesn't mention anything like that, but it can kind of fit into that pool of that gentle push into this this other direction for sure. Yeah, I definitely see how it laid the groundwork for thinking of these from a lens of a sensory difference, not a sensory difficulty and pushing us in that direction. One thing I wanted to talk about right away was you get to the end and you're kind of like, oh, there's limited, insufficient evidence. I think one way that OTs could read that is to be like, well, that just confirms that there's not evidence for what we do. I think I've started to think of that as kind of like a myth that we tell ourselves, that there's not evidence behind our OT interventions. Do you agree with that? Do you think we should accept low levels of evidence Where do you stand on that? Yeah, so uh, I totally, 100 million percent think that it's a myth when folks Mm -hmm. talk about how OT doesn't have any evidence for what we do. I think that is very absolutely incorrect. And I think sometimes it's really hard for folks when they spend a lot of money and time learning about an intervention and utilizing intervention that, I mean, it's, it's tricky And then to hear that maybe that intervention or that treatment strategy isn't super evidence-based within OT, we are a really incredibly evidence-based research, like research-informed profession. It's super research-informed. And we have many treatment strategies that we can use to support sensory processing differences from like a neurodiversity affirming standpoint. Like we can focus on mental health promotion. We can focus on environmental modifications. There's the CERTS model. We can use activity-based cognitive behavioral strategies and really working on amplifying the autonomy and the voice of the individual. And there's just, there's so many things that we can do. And yeah, it's, it's, it is kind of frustrating when folks talk about how OT isn't evidence-based because we really are. And I think that is also speaks to how we do have a lot of, we have so many research articles, we have so many interventions that sometimes we get stuck kind of like we're like an ocean of a lot of of a lot of these articles and these interventions. And sometimes it's hard to kind of really in a meaningful and efficient practice, like trying to absorb it all and try to figure out what mm-hmm. to use, which is also why I love your podcast and what you're doing with OT potential, because you're essentially trying to take a lot of what these articles are saying and providing it in a digestible format. 
because even with your podcast, you're illustrating how we do have a lot of evidence for what we're doing. I just think sometimes it's hard for folks to hear that maybe something that they really believe in isn't super evidence-based. And this is something that I've been tackling with myself and I've been learning myself too. And I think there's a lot of confirmation bias in there where we have a tendency to look for and interpret information in a way that supports our beliefs and what we want from an intervention. But no, we have, OT is very evidence-based, 110%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it just seems like the challenge, like you alluded to, is there's continues to be a lot of research coming out and that over the course of our careers is going to continually nudge us to be changing what we're doing. And that's that's just a hard reality. Like we don't like change. And I think we're being asked to change in lots of areas of our lives. And it's hard to think about our work changing going through eras and changing as new research comes out. And I can see that, especially our sensory focus and what that looks like evolving a lot. You can see how it's going through these eras already. Like I say, now we're starting to head into this era that is more neurodiversity affirming. And that means a change for us. Yeah, that's a, yeah, it's just a lot to process as a clinician and, I think it's exciting for our patients and it's exciting for us, but it's humbling and really takes a lot of us to go through that evolution. It actually does. And if folks ever want to take it a step further, really thinking about, so if you take, or even just thinking about how we're analyzing outcomes and how we're conducting these research studies, how much are we incorporating? the autistic individuals or those who have sensory processing differences into these studies to make sure that what we're looking for is actually meaningful to them. I just remember on my field work that I was doing an eval or I was observing an eval by my clinical mentor at the time and how we did the, I think it was the BOT, the BOT's a fine motor assessment. And they initially came in because the kiddo had a hard time with like emotional regulation and felt like the, he felt like they were, he was misunderstood. And I just remember during the eval, because a part of the bot was like, it's like moving coins and you're like timing the kiddo, looking at how many coins they can move before the time runs out. And I remember the mom asking, and I will never forget it. The mom was like, why are we looking at how fast, how many coins my kiddo can move before the time runs out? This has no relation to how well he performs in school. This has no relation to his ability to regulate and ask for help. And that really helped to really think about even the assessments that I pick, like really looking at the outcomes and really making sure that the outcomes that I'm looking for are meaningful to the kiddo and their family, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that push towards more patient-reported outcome measures is something that mm -hmm. we're seeing across practice areas. And I can see that being really meaningful for pediatric patients. I think I'm I'm hearing that this research that we're looking at where there's this insufficient, limited evidence, I feel like it's nudging us if we've been really focused just on these sensory techniques to be thinking about other approaches. I don't know, would you say that's yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And what's super exciting is that this really is 
kind of in line with the neurodiversity movement and really trying to incorporate more of the social model disability where essentially just because someone is autistic or they're an adhd that doesn't mean they're disabled. Disability comes more from society not being really into providing supports for those that have these individual differences. And it's due to society that disability is created. And so this article kind of talks about like nudging us towards the direction of instead of trying to change the child, modify the child from like this body structural level, this component, and more towards adapting the environment or adapting the occupation or adapting the task. That's essentially kind of what the article is nudging us to, which is really beautiful because like I said, that is really more in line of what a lot of disability advocates are also kind of pushing us for more mm-hmm. for too. Yeah. And you've kind of alluded to this, but the treatment approaches that do have the stronger evidence behind them, what are they? Yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So what's really interesting is a lot of these intervention strategies, they are targeting more of the activity level, the participation level, which is always, which is incredibly interesting. I know you did the podcast with Dr. Novak and how Mm -hmm. that traffic light article also illuminated how there is a much higher frequency of evidence-based interventions that are targeting, like modifying the activity, modifying the environment, modifying the occupation versus actually modifying or trying to adapt or change the child. Mm-hmm. And so essentially a lot of these interventions are kind of like what I've mentioned, like mental health promotion, the alert program, the certs model, task analysis, which is like our bread and butter, like really adapting the task, breaking it down. And like one neurodiversity affirming approach And something that I always do when I learn that a kiddo may even potentially have sensory processing differences is is I always administer the sensory profile to by a doctor when he's done to kind of learn what their sensory processing strengths are. And that's the beautiful thing about sensory processing differences. It's not we're not saying that some aspects of occupational participation are challenging. We're just saying that it's not always about the deficits, and that's why they're differences. And so One um, evidence-based and neurodiversity affirming way is by taking these, learning about what the sensory processing differences are, and you can utilize them as coping strategies, as regulatory strategies. You're coaching with the family to help them understand what this really means for their child. And so you're essentially teaching the family how they can better relate and connect with their kiddos. And there's a lot of evidence supporting coaching and that health promotion aspect, which is really, really beautiful. So all of these are focused on, like, not all, I should say, but like most of them are at this activity, environmental level, and it's much less about changing the child. That's such a beautiful way to say that, and I think that really sums up the past research that we've looked at. Like you said, it's at that activity level, it's involving the family, it's starting with the child's goal, which naturally leads us into more of the activity realm. You know, people, the children aren't like, I want to change my vestibular, whatever. You know, they're like, I want to ride my bike. And I think I'm I'm thinking of the co-op approach too, which is another approach that I really like. And I can see how when you're using that kind of framework, there's still the opportunity to bring in sensory techniques, but it's more from a lens of like, let's try this and see if it works. 
not like an approach of like, this is for sure going to change your child. It's more like, let's try a weighted vest and see if that works, if you're interested in it. Like, I don't know. Is that... No, I totally agree. I I can't really speak too much to the COPE approach because I haven't been trained in it, though I really want to get trained in it because a lot of it is about collaborating with mm-hmm. the client and creating goals with them and like they're like you're amplifying their voice you're t- teaching them how to advocate for themselves i like i love that and the really important thing too is sensory sensory processing differences are a hundred percent real and it's all about just reframing how we support sensory processing differences it's less about trying to change how someone interprets or processes auditory input instead it's about how can we help make the client more autonomous and advocate for like noise canceling headphones or even like reducing stigma around neurodiversity and sensory processing differences and really just promoting beautiful, positive, healthy conversations about how we're, we all are sensory, we're all sensory beings. Mm-hmm. And there's just, there's so much power and beauty in that. And still, and, and then trying to go from this route of, okay, I just did this assessment and it looks like you have sensory processing deficits in tactile and vestibular input. So I'm going to try to change how your body processes this information to support your participation. I mean, it's kind of hurtful when you kind of really like really bring it down into that kind of manner. And so there's just so much power and beauty and like honoring those sensory processing differences and really focusing on amplifying them as strengths for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing all this and I I feel really excited about it, but I also want to push a little bit to be like, what do these OT treatment sessions look like? I think sometimes we are drawn to remedial techniques because they make us feel like an expert, like we're coming in and we're doing this certain thing. But when we're talking about supporting differences, we're coming in as more of a collaborator. We have to be on our toes a lot more. We're responding to the client. How are those sessions different? How is that still OT? What does that Mm -hmm. look like for you, Brighton? Absolutely. And so when you're even looking at the research and the literature, children and adolescents they learn best when they're having fun and when they feel honored and valued. And so essentially kind of what these sessions look like. So let's say I am seeing a kiddo for emotional regulation and I did the sensory profile too. And I learned that they avoid, they're like higher for avoiding and they're higher for auditory input. Seeking is also high and vestibular is also high. So as I'm learning, I'm learning that they often avoid or their anxiety increases when there's like a sudden onset of auditory input. And then I'm also learning that they love to move. Like they feel most like themselves when they're moving around, they're jumping, they're crashing. And so what that looks like is maybe what we'll do is we're going to try to explore together different sensory tools or activities in the gym that make them feel good. And so maybe we're exploring a crash pad. Maybe we're jumping and crashing into a different types of pads And I am just talking with them and saying, hey, how does this make your body feel? Like you can give me a thumbs down, middle, thumbs up, or like maybe we'll use pictures. And I'm essentially trying to explore when I'm first like meeting a kiddo and trying to understand how they experience the world. We'll explore different tools. Like maybe they'll sit on a therapy ball and I'm just talking with them. Like I'm in your world. I want you to tell me how do these tools feel for you? 
And so then maybe we're working on some handwriting. So maybe we're trying some adapted paper. We're working on some handwriting supports that they can implement in the school setting. But I'm adapting it. So maybe I'm going to ask them, so, you know, we're going to write about like what Pokemon team you want to create when you get home on the Nintendo Switch. Would you like to sit on a therapy ball? Would you like to sit on a crash pad? You have unrestricted access to fidget tools because I know how much you love playing with fidgets. Like, what would you like to try today? And so it's about like really teaching them how they can like advocate for these tools because they should get access to like fidgets in school. They can have adapted seating. So it's all about having them explore these different tools. And then when they're working on the occupation itself, like they have access to these tools. And so maybe we're working on like, maybe they're writing the Pokemon team on the adapted paper with the adapted alternative pencils and the, the adapted tools. And I'm like talking with them about, so how is sitting on the therapy ball, like supporting, like supporting you? Do you feel like you're able to like, complete the task more? Do you want to try this instead? Like, what are your thoughts? It's really about like really collaborating with the kiddo on like how they can utilize these tools. Because ultimately, if they can't use these tools in the school setting or at home, then it doesn't really matter if they can use them in the clinic setting. But it's really all about encouraging them, exploration, and the autonomy to like, hey, whenever you feel like your engine's going a little bit faster, or if you feel like you, you need a movement break, let me know and then you could then we can try to try it out tool and see how that works for you. We'll talk about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm so excited for these kids because or linking back to what we talked about at the beginning, like you and I learned about our strengths and differences in OT school and as adults. And for kids to learn about that earlier and experience that and have language around it, that feels so powerful. And I'm so excited for those kids to have that self-awareness of mm-hmm. what works for them and what doesn't. Yeah. And to start to not be afraid to like explore different avenues and see what works for them. Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah. amazing. Cause it's it really you're encouraging the kiddos. Like you're encouraging positive mental health. Like you're teaching them how to advocate for themselves. You're teaching them you're really honoring their identity. And you're mm-hmm. you're even also like you're learning from each other and there's just so much power in that. And I think for me, like that is like, that's such a beautiful component of like what we can do as OTs. Yeah. And to not be afraid of trial and error. Like mm-hmm. sometimes you try things and you're like, well, that wasn't for me. And oh I wouldn't have been able to anticipate that until I did that. Even as an adult, I yes. can't anticipate that. I feel that. like I screw up 99% of the time and that's, you know what? Some days are harder than others that's and that's part okay. Of it. Really yep. though. Yep. That was such a beautiful picture of working with a child. I wanted to ask, too, about interacting with the parent. Something that Dr. Novak talked about when she was on the podcast is she literally like identifies the goal area and then talks to the parents about the different treatment approaches and the level mm-hmm. of evidence behind yeah. them. Is that how you're thinking about it? How are you talking to parents and having those conversations? Yeah, and just to ask one quick follow-up question, just so I can better understand and make sure I'm providing the info that you that you would want. Um, are you talking about if like a parent came to me and they wanted to trial or use like one of these sensory-based interventions, like how would I kind of go about a conversation with them about it? Yeah, I'm curious how you manage those kind of conversations. Yeah, I know when I, a lot of my clinical work, um, sometimes if a kiddo was seen by another OT and they went on a therapy break or they were discharged for a couple of years and they want to come back. It's quite, it's actually quite often how like during the evaluation or, 
or within the introductory paperwork, they'll talk about how their sessions comprised of like therapeutic listening and they wanted to kind of continue with that. And, and so essentially what I do is, you know, I'm very, it's like a mixture of like being gentle, but also just being honest saying like, Hey, like, you know, I recognize that maybe you, you, maybe you're, um, let's say that kiddo's name is, uh, Susan. Like, I know that, you know, Susan participated in therapeutic listening a lot for OT. I know you guys spent some money on like purchasing the headphones and purchasing the music. The evidence really supporting the intervention itself and really supporting kind of the outcomes that you're looking for aren't really there. And so I would, I have a couple other ideas that we could use to really support Susan. What's her comfort level in maybe trying A, B, and C first and really trying to explore and understand how Susan processes the world and how we can support her participation in school and like forming and maintaining friendships and stuff like that. So I usually like to, I like to be honest about it because that's really mm-hmm. what our kiddos and the client, like the our families deserve really. I mean, that's what they're paying for. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of like an ethical responsibility and it's, t- you know, and if folks want to continue to use these interventions, that's totally your practice. Then at least like inform them and be honest with the families about the current lack of evidence so at least they can make an informed decision about if they want to continue forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think part of that, part of having those conversations too is an onus on us as a profession to have more clear materials that showcase the treatment interventions that have the higher level of evidence. I'm so inspired by what's happening in the realm of cerebral palsy, where I think there's starting to be these really clear guidelines. And I think we really need to see that across different diagnoses. I'm hoping within the next five years, we're starting to see that a lot more. Yeah, that really segues into my final question, which I think is a two-part question. First, for OTs, I think for a lot of us, our professional identity has been being a professional that has this expertise in sensory. And with research like this and what we're learning, what does that mean for us moving forward? Does that need to change? That's part one of my question. And part two, again, looking to the future, just what makes you excited about this landscape of supporting children with sensory processing differences? Those are two big questions. Sorry, Doug. No, I love them. They're both such beautiful questions. And so, you know, Sensory processing differences are real. And I think with how the different professions in rehab, like with PT and speech and OT, OT kind of shares some similarities in like treatment strategies and some like models with other professions. And so I think sensory is the one area that we can really confidently say that's like our, not though it's not ours, but like we we like to say that it is our area. And like when people think about OTs, oftentimes they think of like OTs that are sensory therapists. And so I do like validate and empathize with that. And I, I think one thing I really want OTs to know is that we know we're, we're occupational therapists and we're not sensory therapists. And I think it's a slippery slope that if we persist to only offer like these very narrow sensory-based interventions when supporting sensory processing differences or only focus on increasing sensory processing differences, I think we really fail to deliver like the holistic interventions that these kiddos deserve. And so I'm really excited that with the neurodiversity movement and the incorporation of 
or even just the discussion of the social model disability of really how that's impacting occupational therapy and it actually how the neurodiversity movement and the social model disability are helping us to come back to more of an occupation-centered practice. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's beautiful. And that captures, I think, at the beginning where why I said where I've found so much value in thinking of my sense, myself as a sensory being, but it's part of myself. I think of it, Otia's made me think of that as a part of my holistic self. And I think that is the beauty of occupational therapy is we can look through these multiple lenses and use them all to create this really holistic picture. And I think that's the beauty and the strength and the challenge of our profession. I can't believe it, but we're already at the rapid fire part of our time together. Are you up for a couple quick questions? Oh my gosh, yes, please. Finish this sentence for me. Occupational therapy is... Exquisite and, when done well, can really amplify the autonomy and quality of life of a kiddo and their family. What's one moment that you've had as an occupational therapist that you'll never forget? Probably when families thank me for supporting them in learning more about their child and how their child experiences the world and providing them the resources and skills to advocate for what their kids need in schools and and in other environmental contexts. It's pretty cool. Hmm. What's something you've read recently that's inspired you as an OT? I technically I didn't read it. I have I recently completed Learn Play Thrive's Neurodiversity Affirming Goal Writing course that mm. was done by Meg and Rachel Dorsey. And it has been so helpful in challenging much of my internalized ableism, still unpacking and still reflecting, which is really wonderful. Oh, I'm so thankful for the resources out there. And I'll definitely, in our show notes, talk to you afterwards and put some resources for therapists in the in our show notes. But being at the end of our time, we've talked about lots of different things. Is there a final thought or takeaway you want to end us on today? Yeah, I think... In a lot of like the research that examined like practices by pediatric OTs when supporting children and youth, there has been very little kind of reference to occupations. And I really want OTs to remember that our unique expertise lies in understanding the person, their occupations, and the environment and how we can really enable occupational performance and participation. And I have a quote here that I really love that was by Glenn Gillen from 2013. And the quote is, she encourages us to put the occupation back in occupational therapy because nobody does occupation better than we do. And I think that's really beautiful. Mm. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time today and for this discussion. It was really helpful for me to talk these things through and I appreciate your work and what you're doing. I appreciate you. And it's always an honor to support OT potential and you're remarkable. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Brighton. Wow, you all, there is just so much to unpack from this conversation today. I know for me, big picture, I'm just so excited about the things we are learning about neurodiversity and especially those things we are learning from the voices of neurodivergent individuals themselves from 
our clients who are neurodivergent and fellow practitioners who are neurodivergent. I think it's a really exciting time in occupational therapy. I think as always, though, learning new things definitely nudges us to change and think differently about things. I know for me, I've been changing my language around neurodivergence, for example, going from difficulties to differences and changing that language. It changes how we think and ultimately that changes how we act and which is this beautiful and powerful ripple effect. But it's still change and I know change is hard and that's why I'm so thankful to be diving into these topics as a community. We of course talk about them on the OT Potential podcast, but we also have forums in the OT Potential Club to talk about what this all means to you, what this means for your practice, things you disagreed with, places you felt nudged to change. I really hope that you consider joining us in there and sharing your thoughts and sharing your perspectives. The OT Potential Club is also where you're going to go if you want to earn a certificate for your time today. Like I said, we have a five question test for you to take. And if you pass, you can earn a CEU certificate. And as always, I wanna thank you for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk with you next time.